This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Helene Olin, and she is the author of Pound Foolish, Exposing the Dark Side of the Personal Finance Industry, as well as the co-author of the Index Card uh, Guide to Investing is the short version of it with uh, Professor Harold, Harold Pollack. Um, what I really love about Helene is she is a of cocktail thrower. She basically um, looks at the world of financial, uh, personal finance and, and financial advice uh, with an Uzi and is absolutely uh, heartless about machine gunning down people who give bad advice. Uh, I think you'll find the entire podcast to be quite interesting. If you read or follow some of the more popular uh, financial gurus, she has taken down uh, or taken on nearly all of them, uh, especially in the book Pound Foolish. But the slate column is pretty uh, brutal as well. That's what that's what I find so refreshing and fascinating about it. So without any further ado, my interview with Helene Olin. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Helene Olin. She is an author and columnist and really focuses on some of the issues in the personal finance area. She writes a column for Slate called The Bills. She's a regular columnist for Inc. Uh, She has two really fascinating books. One is Pound Foolish, Exposing the Dark Side of the personal finance industry. And some of you may remember Professor Harold Pollack's index card, how to invest with just a dozen bullet points on an index card. And and Helene co-wrote um, why the index card, why personal finance doesn't have to be so complicated with Harold Pollack. She is a graduate of Smith College and was named by Business Insiders as one of the 50 women who are changing the world. Helene Olin, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me on. So uh, there's so much stuff um, I wanted to go over with you. You and I really uh, tread and we really fish in some of the same waters, so to speak. So so let's start out really broad. What's wrong with the personal finance industry today? Well, what's wrong with it? Well, there's a lot of things wrong with it, right? But the, the overriding issue is that it's being sold to people under false pretenses. There's this idea that somehow if you can just save up enough money and invest correctly, you're going to work your way out of what is a greater economic problem that we have right now, which is wage stagnation, the growth of the 1%, wealth inequality, and so on. That is just simply untrue. It doesn't work for most people. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, financial literacy, which some people said, if only we teach people how to invest, how to save, everybody's retirement will be fantastic. Financial literacy broke my heart. Um, I started looking at it several years ago as a solve. Um, I now always feel like when I talk about it, I'm bad mouthing apple pie or Thanksgiving people. Right. Okay. So here's the really deal. what what could be bad about yep. people being literate about their own finances. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work for a bunch of different reasons. First of all, people just don't remember stuff. Second, financial literacy doesn't work for another basic reason. Um, It's um, people literally don't remember. But more to the point, financial literacy is a movement brought to us by the financial services sector. And it was always set up to work around the fact that they are doing what they want to do. So instead of giving us financial um, 
I hate using the word products, but that's the word they use, right? Yeah, I'm not a fan of that word either, but But what else are you going to call it? it, Instead of saying, you know, a 30-year fixed mortgage, they're going to claim that they can teach you how to read 100 single-space pages with tiny little print with more gotcha clauses than than gotchas exist. Mm -hmm. This is obviously false. And when you look at the history of the movement, the modern movement actually begins in in the 1990s with Ford Motor Credit. And Ford Motor Credit had something of a problem. They were getting involved in subprime auto loans, which, of Mm -hmm. course, all the automakers were. But Ford had a problem because a publicity problem, a PR problem, because Henry Ford was always against credit like that. So they came up with this idea that they're going to teach people about financial literacy and they're going to teach them how to do how to manage these loans. So they hook up with some Washington people and some e- economists. And in, sure enough, their first um, uh, their first effort is a, P- a PSA in late 1995 on auto loans that absolutely nobody remembers except for the fact it is in the Nexus database. And then they get this idea that they're going to hook up and do children's personal finance. And this is what takes off because it's the late 1990s and what? it's zero to three. And Now the- I have to interrupt you. Yeah. What is children's personal finance? How how to manage a lemonade stand? Well, it's what like teaching financial literacy in, in elementary school and high school. And, you know, and if we can just teach children how to manage their money, they'll remember it as adults. Now, of course, this doesn't work. Again, this doesn't work because they test these kids a year in and year out. They, The kids who've taken these classes know no more than the kids who haven't taken these classes. But the other thing that's going on is the financial world, um, uh, you know, moves at a fast, fast pace. Mm-hmm. What you're teaching people in 1995 is not necessarily what they're going to need to learn in 2005. Right. Um, but at the same time time, of course, they are not acknowledging that, right? So the whole thing is kind of misbegotten, but we all believe it because it just sounds so good. What could, like you said, what could be wrong with teaching personal finance? So, so oh, let's- wait, one, one more thing. And so the final kick to this is, is it then turns around and sets you up as the vic- as the um, as the person to be blamed when it goes wrong. So when 2008 happened, the banks literally turned around and said, well, if people had just managed their money right, they never would have bought these houses they couldn't afford. That's right. Instead of saying, well, we shouldn't have given loans to people we knew were lying or that our people, you know, filled out the paperwork for them or, you know, we gave them these loans with gotcha clauses. So in the last minute we have in this segment, how did you find your way into this tiny niche? This is a really focused area. Oh, this is great. Um, It was totally by accident. I was living out in L.A. with my husband, and someone in uh, late December of 1996 calls me up from the big paper in town and says, uh, we need someone to sub in at the money makeover feature over Christmas, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you know anything about personal finance? And all I know about personal finance is the fact that it pays a heck of a lot better than anything else in journalism except for tech writing, and I don't do tech writing, right? So with this background in mind, I say, sure, I know all sorts of things about personal finance. And just to be clear, I didn't know a mutual fund from Mutual of Omaha. I mean, Mm -hmm. I want to make this real clear. I didn't know anything. So I I get this gig, and I run down to the Bev Center. I lived a couple of blocks from the Beverly Center, and I buy a copy of Personal Finance for Dummies and a couple of other personal finance books. And with this background, I go off to do my story. And at some point, I start asking the subject all about her money life. Um, you know, makeovers work like fashion makeovers, sure. right? And I hand write this thing up, hand the thing in, wait for my screaming phone call. And instead of a screaming phone call, I get, that was great. Can you do another one? I'm thinking, hey, well, they just paid me double my usual fee. Sure. 
And I do another one, and the same thing happens, and another one, and at some point I realize I'm something of an expert. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Helene Olin. She is the author of, amongst other things, Pound Foolish. And I, I love this description of, of the book. Pound Foolish looks at the gurus, pundits, self-anointed experts, crackpots, cranks, and outright frauds who populate the backwaters and slipstreams of American finance. Did you leave anybody out in that list? That's a pretty good list. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I probably left tons of people out. There's so many of these people, right? So so let's go right to the beginning, because you in the book, you wrote a couple of things that really surprised me. Um, first, personal finance industry started as a response to the Great Depression. I had no idea about that. That's an amazing piece of information. Give us the historical background of this. Okay, so it, there was always like little bits of of like budget guidance and papers, right? And there was also always investment advice, you know, prior to the Great Depression. What happens afterwards is a woman named Sylvia Porter, mm -hmm. um, who is a nineteen at the time nineteen year old college student at Hunter, when her mother loses the family fortune in a stock market scam after the nineteen twenty nine market crash, and Sylvia Porter decides to make it her life's mission to make sure something that like the Great Depression can't happen again, and she begins she decides to go to journalism. Um, this is, these are the days when you can actually make a living in journalism, right? So anyway, she goes into journalism and she starts writing for the New York Post and she's got this sort of engaging voice. And over a period of a number of years, they give her a column. This turns into a regular feature. And it's initially SF Porter says. They don't even say she's a woman until right. the early 1940s. And over time, over a period of several years, I mean, this isn't Decades. instantaneous. Yeah, she sort of creates what we today call personal finance. And by 1960, she's on the cover of Time magazine. She gives advice to JFK. Um, Lyndon Johnson actually says something like, why can't my economic advisors talk and give advice more like Sylvia? She becomes this massive guru. Wow. And of course, today, she's all but forgotten. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of wild to me. Nobody... Almost no one under the age of 50 even remembers who she is anymore. What sort of advice did she give and, and was it any good? Well, you know, she started very political. She started off as an extremely political figure. She would get into arguments with the Roosevelt administration over bond issues. She um, gave tax advice to JFK, as I said. But then over time, like a lot of gurus, she starts to become increasingly wealthy, increasingly prominent. She gets increasingly cut off. And what starts happening is by the 1970s, she's giving inflation advice. You know, she joins President Ford's Whip Inflation Now campaign, um, which was really absurd. Um, you didn't she, think buttons helped bring uh, down uh, uh, inflation? Uh, I mean, a few years later, inflation was almost gone. So uh, there's a correlation there, to say the least. Well, poor Sylvia, right? <laughs> she never recovered from this. So, so she starts giving advice to people like, don't buy veal, which was then very expensive, buy sure. chicken. And of course, most of her people were never buying veal. And in what had to be my favorite, and unfortunately, I found this column after I wrote Pound Foolish, actually suggested to people they substitute... Um, several teaspoons of peanut butter for lean meat if they couldn't get their Social Security check to stretch far enough for meat. Um, the, actually, the United States government at the time had a better idea. That's when we got the cost of living adjustment for Social Security right. um, because the elderly were increasing trouble as the inflation began to pick up in the 1960s. Elder poverty was, was fairly was, rampant way back right. then. Right. It was when we were children. Elder poverty was, was very still fairly significant. 
And um, so that's Sylvia Porter. And so, then- so let me jump in right here because the Sylvia Porter, those recommendations are one of my pet peeves. I've always despised the advice. Hey, you know, if you skip the latte and reinvest that money every day for the next 30 years, by the time you retire, you'll have millions of dollars. And, and my perspective has always been no, $5 a day isn't going to make a difference. And second, if $5 is the difference between you retiring comfortably or bankruptcy, there's something wildly wrong with, with your entire financial situation. Right. You've written even more aggressively about oh, this. I think it's absolute BS. I mean, there's a couple of things wrong with it. Um, on a mathematical level, it makes, and what's going on in our society, it makes no sense, right? Our problems are not, and I particularly use, you know, a Starbucks latte because it became so famous. Our problems are not that people are drinking too many Starbucks lattes, though I'm sure there are people who are spending too much money at Starbucks, right? Um, my older or too son, much money right? anywhere. All right. My older son might frankly be one of them, but that's neither here nor there at the moment. But the the issue is that what was going on is people's salaries were stagnating and falling relative to mm-hmm. inflation. But what was going up was healthcare, housing, education, childcare, stuff like that. And that was going up at rates over inflation, not for years, not for a decade, but for decades and continues to this day. So the idea that you're throwing your money away at Starbucks is absurd. What was really going on is you're can't keep up with the cost of living. The other thing that really makes me crazy about this is that the idea that we're spending too much kind of falls into this sweet spot in the American, you know, canon, right? Mm-hmm. Where on the left wing, you, you, spending is always seen as somehow morally wrong in some way, right? Well, we it's, a, it's a hobby of the rich, it's, and therefore right. it's tainted, right? You like you shouldn't be wearing good clothes, or you shouldn't be enjoying good food. There's something not right about it, right? And on the on the by right, the way, does that still exist anymore? Because that might have been true in the '60s and '70s, and you have this really nascent movement about live small or the dumpster divers and all that's a Mr. Money Mustache says don't spend any money, that's- retire at thirty. But that's a you know, consumerism is a huge part of American culture. Well, it is huge because most of us like. Like luxuries, um, it's that great stuff. Line. Experiences, right. everything. Right. It's that great line from Three Penny Opera: "Live life in luxury." That's what it's for, right? We like luxury. There's nothing wrong with it as long as you can afford it, right? So, on the other side, though, on the right wing side, what you get is this idea that people are wasting their money and that they're somehow not deserving. And that's where you go out, you see people on CNBC, and I always love this. They're always dressed in like $300 suits, and they're ranting about poor people and their smartphones. Smartphones mm. have kind of become the new latte factor now. Right. And Smartphones you know, are the new uh, welfare queens in a Cadillac. Right, Remember exactly. that yes. line of argument. Exactly. And, you know, as I always say, you know, try getting a job anywhere without a smartphone, first of all, right? Right. But second, it's just absolutely, again, untrue. If anything, people with less money actually have less smartphones than anybody else. They actually do surveys on this. But so this whole idea that we're just spending ourselves into oblivion is ridiculous. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Helene Olin. She is a personal finance author, uh, most recently co-author with Harold Pollack of The Index Card, uh, the book which explains why personal finance does not have to be complicated. And the genesis of this is really pretty simple. Professor Pollack wrote an index card with like a dozen bullet points. I actually have it right here. A dozen bullet points. It 
got tweeted and then became a column, a, a one-off column, and it went completely viral. And uh, how did you end up meeting him and how did you guys decide to turn this into a book? Well, he the way the index card came about is he was interviewing me for a blogcast. Remember when people used to do sure. video blogcasts all back, way back in 2013, right? And he um, interviewed me about Pound Foolish. And at some point in the interview, he said, well, you know, this is just ridiculous. Everything you need to know about personal finance can be put on an index card, meaning, of course, the industry is selling BS, right? Right. And we laughed about it and we go on with the interview and neither of us thinks about it for the next half hour or whatever we're doing, right? And then people begin to write him and say, that index card, that sounds great. Where is it? Thinking like he had done an index card. Of course, he had done no such thing. So he decides to do an index card, which you have right here in front of you. I, I on mean, the literally, radio, this, is, this is an index card. Max your 401k, buy inexpensive <laughs> diversified funds. Uh, you know, a whole run of things that are basically just straightforward, common sense advice. Right. And so he puts it online and on the on the same blog that he interviewed me with. And the next thing I know is on Google Alerts, I'm starting to get, you know, my name with index card. And I'm like, what the heck? Index card? And then, of course, we ended up, you know, I knew what happened pretty fast. And we ended up deciding to do a book together. That That's fantastic. And I, I saw this on Twitter with like, 40,000 likes or some insane number it had it had just gone absolutely um absolutely viral so of the dozen or so bullet points he uses what do you think are the most important that people uh, should be aware of well i think for people who are investing and this is a big you know what if right because i'm not what if but you know a big that's segment. a subsector that's a of subsect, the whole public right because but don't buy individual stocks don't buy man go into managed mutual funds. I mean, the the thing is, is people are being ripped off blind here. People are they're being sold on this idea that there's a secret out there and that, you know, they're gonna find the person who's gonna give them the secret and they're gonna do better than the markets, right? Couple of things. First, this is a really expensive way to invest. So Wall Street is making a killing. That's why you're being sold on this idea. Second, every study we know shows that the vast majority of people, by which I mean about more than 99%, um, have no ability to outguess the markets year in and year out, especially after costs are taken into account. And third, you then have to ask a certain amount of common sense. If you have found that rare person who actually has that ability, right, or you think you are that person, why on earth would anybody tell you this, right? You and your 10000 or 100000 or even million or $2 million, right? Surely they're going to go find somebody with a couple of billion to invest or even better, set themselves up on a yacht outside the Caymans or some other really nice place in the Caribbean and trade for themselves and make a lot of money. Why are they selling you the secret? Makes no sense whatsoever. So let me let me go to one of the last bullet points here, which is something I've always found to be fascinating. Make financial advisors commit to a fiduciary standard. Um, so let's let's just briefly explain what is the fiduciary standard, what is the alternative, and why uh, why should people adhere to one over the other? Okay, we all think, or most of us think, that when we go off to seek financial advice, we're going to go off and see somebody, and they're the equivalent of a doctor, right? They've got some Hippocratic oath. Lawyer, accountant. Right. Yeah, they've got some Hippocratic oath to our finances. This is absolute BS. They work to something called, the, most, most of them, not all of them, uh, work to something called the suitability standard, which is sort of this idea that as long as the financial advice they're giving you is sort of okay. Suitable. It can line, yeah, suitable. It can line their pockets, you know, as much as yours, frankly. And to, to get a little technical, the broker-dealer side of the world, the commission-based side of the world, um, which is a, governed by an SRO called FINRA, 
they're the ones who regulate and manage the suitability standard, which I'm fond of saying, don't sell some high-tech IPO to grandma. That's my definition of suitability. I, I think they would say that that's perfectly okay, and you can even go further than that, right? So anyway, so most people don't realize this, though, because the kick is, of course, they don't even have to tell you this. So what the fiduciary standard is, is what the registered investment advisors and certified financial planners mostly work to, which is this idea that they do have to act in your best interest and they have to put their your best interest ahead of, of their own. The Department of That's Labor- That's about, uh, the, they used to be under the suitability period. standard in the last minute. Tell us what's about to happen with the Department of Labor uh, changes. Okay. So the Department of Labor- is decides a few years ago that they're going to bring individual retirement accounts under this under the fiduciary standard as well. Okay, and you have to understand something: regular accounts are, are managed by are, are under the rule of the SEC, and retirement accounts are under the Department of Labor. So that's a whole other craziness. So the Department of Labor says we're going to deal with this this with the with IRAs because but for most people they're investing their retirement money right, and. The financial industry goes insane. Bonkers. Bonkers. This starts in 2008. It is going on to this day. And essentially, they are claiming people won't be able to give get good advice, middle class people, because they won't be able to afford to give them advice, which when you think about it, if you believe them, which I don't, but we'll come to that in a minute, they are essentially saying, if we have to act in our client's best interest, we don't have a business <laughs> model, okay? This is a, the logical follow through, but they don't admit that, right? So in fact, what we know is because the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College studied this a couple of years ago, it will cut into their profits, but they can still make a profit giving financial advice. They just can't make as much of a profit as before. And they're really unhappy about that. So there's there's a fascinating little history that correlates with this because I've I've written about it and I just did another column about this. What people don't realize about this whole debate and how it came about is within, so the financial crisis comes along, and while there are many, many causes of it, one of them is something just called misaligned incentives, where you're creating an incentive for people to do stuff that turns out to be both really, really stupid and personally lucrative. Turns out that's not a great thing to have in finance, really, really dangerous, damaging, stupid stuff, and highly lucrative, bad combination. So as part of the Dodd-Frank regulations, there is a research report that the SEC has to do looking at the various standards of incentives and compensation and conduct that of which there's this patchwork, this dual dual system that doesn't seem to make any sense. The SEC's own, own staff releases this giant report in 2011, and their recommendation is get rid of suitability, make it fiduciary across the board, and the SEC, politically deadlocked, doesn't vote on that, doesn't, doesn't pass that. So that then sits and lingers for the next five years. The Council of Economic Advisors does some research into this and uh, the White House put out, I think it was last year or earlier this right. year, they put out a report that says the lack of fiduciary standard in just in retirement accounts alone, just in 401ks, IRAs, what have you, costs investors $17 billion a year. And someone comes up with the bright idea of saying, well, since we can't get the SEC off the dime to, to vote on this and approve it, the industry really doesn't want to see suitability, uh, doesn't want to see fiduciary across the board. 
hey, these retirement accounts are essentially compensation, 401k, 403b. That's why they're governed by Department of Labor and, and ERISA. It's a form of compensation. So they get to have reign over that where the SEC doesn't. So really, because 401ks are a form of compensation, the White House gets to backdoor the SEC, go to the DOL, and the thinking is that once the fiduciary standard is on 401ks and other retirement um, accounts, that'll take us up to 35 or 40%. And that's like a tipping point. And eventually, look, when we look at Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch, they're a hybrid. They're both a broker and an RIA. They used to have like single digit percentage of fee-based RIA stuff. It's now over two thirds of their, at least their retail business, it's all gravitated to that. So in a bizarre way, the financial crisis led to to this new fiduciary rule, which, by the way, uh, the UK has. It's a standard rule. The SEC's own staff recommended it. It's amazing that we just haven't adopted yeah. it uh, in the well, US. The way it works in the UK is a bit different. They, they've banned commission sales, which we're not looking mm -hmm. to do here. Um, and that seem and you know under the same theory, of course, because if you can't do a commission, and they right, capped it, didn't they cap it at about fifty basis yeah. points on uh -huh. retirement accounts? And so the idea is, of course, you can't have a conflict of interest if you aren't on commission, because one of the things that's going on right now is people are um, financial advisor types. Um, by the way, and financial advisor, I have to say, is just an absolute junk term that means absolutely mm -hmm. nothing. Um, You're either a broker, an RIA, yeah, a CFA, right. a CFP. There's got to be right. some real right. title there. So, you know, the idea is if there's no conflict, if there's no commission, you know, discrepancy, you won't be able to have this conflict of interest. Over here, it looks like the Department of Labor is not going to do the do the commission issue. They're going to allow commissions, but they are going to insist that it can't affect your thinking. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you do that because you've – so here's the problem with the right. suitability standard for these sort of accounts. When you have a incentive set up, first rule of economics, incentives matter. Right. So if you're incentivizing someone to every transaction generates a commission, well, essentially you are subconsciously at the very least encouraging transactions that will generate commission, which means you're generating costs, you're generating taxes, you're generating turnover – all three of those things are not good for long-term performance. So someone had, had there's a really fascinating hashtag on Twitter, hashtag fiduciary, and you'll see all the arguments pro and con. And I've been looking for the arguments against the fiduciary standard that carry water, and it's really hard to find them. The best, one of the best arguments I've seen, which is still pretty weak, is, well, it's much cheaper to set this up with a one-time commission. Right. You set up the portfolio as opposed to an ongoing fee. But if that's the case, aren't you better off just paying someone an hourly rate? There are thousands of people who will do that sort of financial work for you on a per-hour basis, charge you once, and you never have to pay them again. That's probably the cheapest, least conflicted way to do it. Without is this mutual fund company paying them without any of the obvious conflicts that are out right. there? Right. Well, the, the 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 turnaround claim is that people won't pay for it, and of course they might be right. But one of the reasons is because of the industry has basically told people that they're getting the service for free, which is not true, by right, the way. Of course not. But people don't see it that way because again, they don't have to tell them. So people think that they're getting a free service when in fact they're paying commissions. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Helene Olin. She is a personal finance author. She's written the book Pound Foolish as well as uh, Index Card Investing. 
Let's talk a little bit about some of the columns you've done uh, for Slate and elsewhere. You you have some really, really fascinating headlines and fascinating columns that I've personally found very amusing. Um, so I understand the Obama administration's new fiduciary rule is going to stop people from discussing personal finance on the radio. Right. Well, that's absolute falsehood. That's one of the things being put out there by the opponents to expanding the fiduciary standard. Um, it got linked to by the Drudge Report recently, got hundreds of thousands of hits, hundreds. Of, I think last time I checked about 500,000. And I, of course, went and checked this out. And I was like, really? We should only be so lucky, right? <laughs> and, and the answer is, of course, this is absolute falsehood. The fiduciary standard only applies if you have a, a relationship with the person. If you call a financial radio program or um, or a TV show and you discuss, you ask for advice, let me explain something. You might think you're getting legal advice. You are entertainment people, okay? That's right. That's exactly Nobody right. Nobody thinks if you give a 30-second overview of your financial situation and somebody just rants for a few minutes, a la Dave Ramsey or Jim Cramer, that you are in an advisory situation. In fact, Jim Cramer doesn't even take personal finance clients. How could you be in an advisory situation with him? That, it makes that no makes, sense. That makes perfect sense. So here's another one that I think is fascinating. Why is financial advice, quote, just for women – a bad idea. Oh, it's ridiculous. Um, the idea is, is that women have special financial needs. Um, we do have special financial needs. Let me explain. We um, we earn less than men uh, at all stages in our careers. We have more responsibilities. We have more um, scattered careers thanks to caregiving. And by caregiving, I mean everything from children to parents to elderly relatives and friends. Um, we will lose more money for that caretaking than a man will if he takes mm -hmm. it on. And of course, the final kick is we live longer, so we need more money. Now, so the wait, financial that... services industry says, oh, then you should save more money and we have special advice for you. Now, understand, if you're underpaid, aren't working as steadily and living longer, I mean, this is like ask. This is like the old line about Ginger Rogers that I think Ann Richards once said. She had to do everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in high-heeled shoes. <laughs> this is not going to work. So there is no special financial advice for women. What women have is a social and economic problem that needs to be addressed. So you don't think that could be solved by being condescended to? That won't that won't resolve that issue. No, for you? and then the kicker is right. It is condescending. Thank you. And then so this women's financial advice has this weird combination of sounding empowered and infantilizing at the same time. It's kind of like, God, you're multitasking so much. You have so many burdens. Here, we'll take this one burden from you so that you don't have to bother your little head about it, right? So uh, let's let's talk about one of my favorite things. Tell us about wealth therapy. Oh, I love wealth therapy, right? The, the idea is, is that people need uh, psychological help managing the emotions around money, right? Now, somehow this mostly applies, strangely enough, to people who have the money to pay the bills for therapy. Because understand, financial therapy is not cheap. It's $250 an hour and up. Not and in this city, it ain't. Yeah, it's more, right? Yeah. It's more like 400 an hour yep. and up. And understand, it's not in the DSM. So there's no code for it. This DSM is, meaning? Oh, the oh yeah, diagnostic manual for, for, um, you know, for medical reimbursements, right? 
So weirdly enough, financial therapy just sort of presumes that like, you know, wealthy people need help. And it's like stuff like affluenza. And like, <laughs> do you feel bad about having to pay your housekeeper? And what do you do if your friends are really jealous of the money you have? I mean, this is absolute BS, right? I mean, I'm sure people have issues if they have a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I have met people over the years. They do. But this is not, they do not have money problems the way somebody who can't get by on their paycheck has money problems. So these are these are good money problems right. to have as opposed to can't afford health care. How am I going to pay for medicine? Right. That's a horrific money problem right. to have. And when I looked at financial therapy, what I found was a lot of the financial therapists, and I don't say all of them, by the way, a lot of them were former eating specialists. And there's a couple of reasons. Wait for this. a second. Yeah. Wait. How, first of all, how do you find that out? You just do research on people offering wealth therapy, yeah. and it turns out they're also obesity specialists or well, or um, right. Uh, well, I would get eating called, disorder when specialists. I did pound foolish. I talked to a whole bunch of them, and a lot of them would tell me that they had done time in in food disorders, and they would make the link, right? And they would say, well, you know, people binge eat when they're unhappy, and they spend money when they're unhappy, right? And it actually is an interesting link because actually, mo a lot of people have weight issues, not just because of. Um, because they binge eat, right? Because the food supply has changed. Right. And, you know, they have put cord oil in everything, which puts more weight on. High fructose corn High syrup. High fructose corn syrup, board, right? right? Thank you. They, um, you know, people who have less money can't buy fresh food because they're afraid it will go bad. Or it's not or, even or it's offered not even in available, their neighborhood. Right? right. So they have to buy packaged processed food, which puts weight on as well. And you can go on, right? So there actually is a link, but that's not the link they see. The link that's really going on here, of course, is, again, you know, the insurance companies have cut back on reimbursements um, to a huge extent and people have had to move on. Um, it's So very in other words, they weren't getting reimbursed. They couldn't. People were coming in for eating disorders were no longer being reimbursed well, by insurance? Well, they are reimbursed. But like, for instance, it's much harder to get, you know, get inpatient therapy now than it used to be, right? Mm. Remember back in the 1990s, anybody could get inpatient therapy. Now, of course, you know, the insurance companies put you through gazillions of hoops. So you set up instead an, an, you know, an, an on-site, you know, facility for money disorders and people are just paying cash out cash out it's like are, going are, to a doctor who doesn't in, take insurance i was right? gonna say insurers aren't paying for this are they no if you're wealthy enough to have to require wealth therapy i think you have to pay for that out of pocket right exactly so it's a great great business to get into and hey you probably are helping some wealthy people who need some hand holding but my favorite was one of the judd sisters and i'm forgetting which one it's in pound foolish did um, wealth therapy, and she becomes like the poster girl for it. And she gives this interview in the New York Times in 2008, the fall of 2008, mind you. Good time. And she says, you know, yes, I went down from five cars to one car. And if I can do it, anyone can. That That's true. When you think about it, it's very easy to just let those leases expire and just stick with one or two regular vehicles. How many of us really need five or six vehicles? Uh, exactly. And how many of us have that problem, that's, right? That's really good advice for our listeners is to just cut it down to one or two cars. And I find the same with boats. Just keep it to one right. or two boats. Your your budget will be much, uh, much better. Vacation houses too, right? That, Skiing vacations. Is there really that much? I know I'm being sarcastic for those of you who may have missed that, but is there really that much of a lack of self-awareness amongst that sort of cult of celebrity who just is wholly unaware of how the average person lives? It's more than the cult of celebrity. What it is, is 
to get very serious for a moment, it's really about the 1% society. Because one of the many things that our society has done is, is as we have become more economically stratified, we tend to only interact with people who are like us. People, the society you and I grew up in was more ethnically segregated, yep. but it was more economically open, right? All the Jews lived in the same neighborhood, kind of. Uh, so you maybe. tended to meet people more. And now it's kind of a little, not so much like that. And what happens is, is you just interact with people like yourself over and over and over again. And so you kind of lose perspective. I mean, this is a very common problem for people. And so for, and it's why, by the way, you see people ranting on TVs about poor people and smartphones too. They think that's really the problem um, because, hey, probably for their kids, it might be, right? Well, nobody has landlines anymore. Right. Everybody who's under 30 has a smartphone. And if you need to get a hold of them, what's your home number? This is my only number. Half the time, it's a Google voice number anyway. It's right. not even, it goes with whatever phone they happen to be near. Is that a legitimate issue amongst uh, amongst the public that poor people have smartphones because i've read the argument that why are the poors complaining they have air conditioning and satellite tv right the argument is is that people shouldn't be complaining because hey compared to poor people 100 years ago or 200 years ago we've got air conditioning we have refrigerators and so on and so forth this is ridiculous we live in the here and now right, right. and people are you know living paycheck to paycheck they um they really are strapped we live in a society where if one thing goes wrong for you you can end up in bankruptcy court right. you know medical insurance is away. not very good still for a lot of people the deductibles are absurd a lot of stuff is not covered um you know people can't afford childcare. um my last i, I do an advice column over at slate um, called Ask the Bills every two weeks. And the last one I did is somebody wrote in and you know just started laying out their situation and said, I don't think I can afford to have children. What do I do? And I, I don't know what to say to that, except for the fact that obviously if one wants to have children, they should have, be able to have children and figure it out as they go along. But the fact is, is we live in a society with no supports whatsoever. If people want to find more of your writings, what's the best way for them to track you down? Um, I write for Slate several times a week. I have the column, The Bills. I contribute to Moneybox. Um, you could also buy Pound Foolish or the Index Card. They're on all sorts of uh, sites, including Amazon and Powell's, the independent bookstore, and The Strand. Um, I love The Strand. I have to get that in. Um, and um, all over the place. Oh, and also I write a column every couple of months for Inc. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continuing chatting. You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Helene, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. And, and being so generous with your time. So there's so many questions I didn't get to. Before I get to my standard questions, I have to go through some of the things that, that we missed. And we really plowed through a lot. A lot of the stuff we missed had to do with Pound Foolish, which I'm going to have you sign for me later. Okay. So, so let's talk about, I love this line. You described a... Distinctly American tribe, the spiritual savior posing as financial expert. 
Where, I love that phrase. What does that mean? Well, personal finance originates in the self-help industry, right? People don't really understand this. They always think it's some form of business writing, and it kind of is, right? But it's really an offshoot of the self-help industry, mm-hmm. and the self-help industry dates to you know the, the 1930s when, as with Sylvia Porter, it, you know people were looking for answers. And at the same time, it kind of met mass culture. So, you know, during the 1930s, you have a lot of stuff going on. I mean, you can, you know, you have um, communism, you have fascism. People are looking for answers. The self-help industry is one of the isms of the 1930s. So you began to see things like Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. Oh, sure. This is a bestseller in the 1930s. Is that when that came out? Yeah. People are living in Hoovervilles. And this book is a bestseller, right? Um, when did the Dale Carnegie books come also out? Also the 1930s. I mean, a little sense. bit before as well, but during right. the 1930s. And thinking, um, you know, how to win friends and influence people. Sure. So, but the thing is with all of this stuff is you need the story, right? And the story is the story. And you have to somehow, for the people who become the big financial gurus, they have the story of how they were lost and they were found. It's like St. Augustine, except for personal finance. Right. So like Susie Orman, for instance. So wait, before you go into that, you have a beef with a number of gurus. In Pound Foolish, you basically just caught her off at the knees, Susie Orman. What's your beef with Susie Orman? Well, Susie Orman is all over the place. She has given rampantly inconsistent advice. Um, she can be very judgmental, which was not how she started, by the way. Susie Orman comes out of the um, 1970s and 1980s Bay Area self-actualization scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and Est the, and that sort of stuff? I don't think she ever did Est, um, but somebody would have to ask her that. She follows, a, or, or, or followed, I'm not sure what the correct answer to this is now, uh, a big yoga guru out there. And um, there's a lot of this sort of emotional money stuff, right? Mm-hmm. She sort of combines the personal finance of Sylvia Porter with the self-actualization of the 1960s and Makes 1970s, sense. and which is why she's Susie Orman and everybody else isn't. Nobody else ever thought to do this. And so it becomes this emotional money, sort of how do you feel about it, combined with tough love. And as you can imagine, since that doesn't sound very... Sexy. Yeah, it, it becomes very inconsistent over time, basically. And But it reinvented personal finance for the 1990s. She um, started out doing an in, infomercial on financial television, and, and eventually the infomercial got so popular... They offered her a show. Right. She, well, she, you know, did a number of books. She, I mean, to her credit, she hustled like crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like she was, you know, found overnight. And she um, became a big star in part because women really liked this sort of, you know, more emotional approach, less about, you know, here's the five stocks you need, right? It was more about how you feel about your money, which was perfect in the 1990s. So you're not a big fan of hers. You think that her advice, if I'm I'm paraphrasing from the book, some of the advice she gives is conflicted. Some of it's inconsistent. What What's really your biggest beef with her before we go to the next two people? I would people? say that's it. And there's a judgmental thing that has crept in over the years. So, so. let's talk Let's talk about Dave Ramsey, because you haven't had kind things to say about Dave. Well, Dave is, you know, a guy. He's another one. He's got the story, right? You know, the, the Dave Ramsey's story is that he was a real estate wheeler and dealer in his early 20s. He gets it over his head, and he has to declare bankruptcy. And then he decides to reinvent his personal financial life, and he never takes credit again, which is apparently quite true. Never uses credit at yeah, all. Right. He buys his house outright, everything. And By the decides- way, there's not. I have to say, there's nothing in the world wrong with a 30-year fixed mortgage 
assuming you can afford it and the house. Yes, it's called leveraged money. It's a really great thing, and I would urge anybody who can come up with a 20% down payment to do it, right? So as long as they think they're going to stay put. But that's a digression, right? So anyway, though, he gets on the air, and he starts with a radio show as well, with mm-hmm. the story, right? You know, I'm a former bankrupt. I've been saved. Well, among other things is... He says nobody should be declaring bankruptcy, or almost no one should be declaring bankruptcy. But he declared bankruptcy. Right. I mean, which is just utterly absurd. By the way, he is rabidly against the fiduciary Well, he has developed a whole empire, right? He does. He has an advisory network that works to the- to the suitability standard. Mm-hmm. He does load funds of more than 5% the last mm-hmm. time I checked. I would have to double check. Does he this. do insurance? He only does term insurance. He has okay. some good things. That's I mean, legit. I don't want to say he's totally awful, but more to the point, I think the thing that concerns me the most is people think of him as a simple personal finance guru. He's not. This is very political stuff. He's conglomerate and well, political. Well, more than conglomerate. This is real political stuff. He gets on the air five days a week, 500 plus stations. I believe he's only 550 right now. He says Social Security is a debacle. He cannot stand um, the Affordable Care Act. He bashes Obama. I I mean, I can go on about this. This is is a lot of political stuff going on here. The very first column I wrote for the Washington Post was was titled, Why Investing in Politics Don't Mix. Because- once you're bringing in the emotions of politics, your investing portfolio is just skewed. You lose the ability to be objective. And we saw it with people when Bush was in. Oh, he's going to destroy the budget. Market doubled from 03 to 07. We saw it with Obama in 09, famous Wall Street Journal op-ed, Obama's going to destroy the Dow, and and then the S&P triples over the next seven years. It It's a terrible way to think about money. Well, I would say there's another thing going on, too, and I would agree with you, but there's another thing going on, too, right? Which is, again, it's a lot of personal finance is kind of very subtly political. Mm -hmm. And it's political because it accepts the system as it is. It doesn't say, a la the early 1970s, we really need to do a cost of living adjustment for Social Security. It puts the blame on the individual. Now, in many cases, this is like bailing out the Titanic with a bucket. Right. I mean, it's not going to work. Um, But it accepts the world as it is, and it then blames you, the individual who might be suffering from unemployment, who might be suffering from ill health, who might be forced to retire early and be suffering from age discrimination and not be able to get a job, who might be living in an area where housing still has not recovered in 2016. It says the fault is yours, that you made the mistake, and that there's nothing government can do, there is nothing to be done, and you're at fault and you should suffer. And that's my main beef with this. So, so let's talk about one more guru, Robert Kiyosaki. You've you've thrown him under the bus as well. I think a lot of people have thrown him under the bus, including Susie Orman, to her credit. Oh, really? Uh, you know, the, there's a some interesting. Well, you've written about some of the crazy bankruptcy litigation right. that happened. He's been wildly successful as a person who writes books and gives seminars. Right. Well, he came up with this idea, this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, where he claimed he was mentored by a rich dad, who, by the way, nobody's been able to prove existed. Um, you know, and Rich Dad told him he should take leveraged money. So it's the opposite of Dave Ramsey, right? Right. And, you know, and buy multiple homes and multiple investments and, you know, 
be really wealthy. This is a sort of wealth guru thing. It's kind of the opposite. You know, people like Dave Ramsey and David Bach who came up with the latte factor are telling you to sacrifice. The latte factor. factor right? Was that a book? Yeah, it was in the, I don't think he ever wrote a book named that. Um, it was in, I'll come back to it in a minute. So anyway, but, but they're telling you to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And, you know, if you save your $5 a day, you'll, you'll retire with, multi, with millions of dollars. Kiyosaki is coming at it from the opposite perspective. He's basically saying, do what I'm telling you. You know, buy multiple properties or investments with borrowed money, and you can buy this. You know, the the coffee, the, the the ground underneath the car, the coffee shop, and have as many lattes as you desire. Which, in, a, in and of itself, is you know not unreasonable. Like in terms of, well, yeah, people deserve their latte, right? But at the same time, of course, this is wildly irresponsible. I mean, my favorite Kiyosaki of all time was. And Chuck Jaffe caught this out um, at, at Market Watch. At Market Watch. Yep. Was I like Chuck's work. He's I good, love his really work. As so I have to give credit for this. He caught him out once, asked, once telling people they could trade on margin at a brokerage where they didn't have money. I've, that's absurd. Of course you can't do that. Trade on margin. <laughs> and, a, a bro and, and for people who may not be aware of the rules, margin is two to one of whatever dollars you have. So if you have zero, two times zero is still zero. You can't really do that. You can put stock in, you can put other things in, but there has to be some legitimate asset there. Right. I have a standing offer in my slate column. If anybody does this and is successful, they should write me immediately and I will write a column about them. Um, at the same time, I will also write a column if you seriously call up your your brokerage and just ask. And if you can tell me the, what the brokerage says to you, I'd like to put that in the column too. So, so Kaya, so we've talked just loosely about him. But you've written about this thing that took place with him and the people who were sponsoring him. There was a break. And, and what happened? Well, there? there's been a massive falling out between him and um, the learning the, the addicts. Learning addicts. It? You guys yeah. remember the learning addicts? It sure. was this big thing like in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Continuing where ed for you know, adults. Right. And um, they would like bring people in and they do lectures and whatnot. And so Kiyosaki, actually, they helped Kiyosaki get his start as a big time guru. And then they were talking about doing these wealth seminars with him, um, a la Trump University now, right? Where, you know, you bring people in and you say, you know, hey, spend $1,000 this weekend and Kiyosaki will tell you the secrets, right? And they, bring, they have these self-appointed teachers. Well, Kiyosaki decided this was such a great idea, he ultimately found another partner to do it with. And uh, not surprisingly, the learning addicts got a little annoyed because they had felt they had brought the idea to him and they sued him. And uh, the courts eventually, after several years, ruled in the learning addicts' favor. There was a contract between the right. two of them. Yes, it was, you know, ongoing conversations. Right. And anyway, so the next thing is that Kiyosaki's business outfit that was negotiating with the learning addicts declares bankruptcy. So there's now a whole thing in Wyoming where... There seems to be a case that is closed. Well, there is a case that is closed to the public that seems to be about where Kiyosaki's money is. We don't really know for sure that that's what it's about. Uh, and it's about. like 20 something million. By the way, I don't know if, if there was a contract. I don't know how much it is. I'm doing this off the top of my head. I, memory implies it was about $24 million. I think it like might that. have been $40 million, but it's oh, also really? memory. But, um, it's a, but it's a big chunk of money. It's a huge chunk of money. And, and there's some can... underlying, I don't remember if it was a contract relationship, but some basis that the, the learning annex actually right. wins the court case. Right. and Which I, leads to the bank, corporate right. bankruptcy. I don't believe there was a contract, but I believe there was conversations and emails and such. Hmm, so That's interesting. Um, but I would have to double check that, actually. And 
Yeah, so this is what's going on now, and there's movements in this Wyoming case, um, the learning at, um is it the learning addicts? People have sued to get the case opened up, basically. Learning addicts wants the case opened up to the public so that they can see what on earth is going on what, here. If indeed that is what's going on, nobody what, really knows. What was the basis of closing? This isn't a child, a case with a child or anything. Nobody knows. Why would this be sealed? We don't know because that, it's sealed. That's fascinating. So, but I, I don't want people to think we're just trashing Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, Robert Kiyosaki. There are people who genuinely like what they say, who've benefited and learned from them. But you raise some very credible issues as to some problems with the advice they offer or some of the conflicts conflicts they have. I only have you for another 10 minutes, and I, we could talk about these guys and others for hours. So I want to get to some of my favorite questions with you that I ask all my guests, and I'm going to do the abbreviated version before uh, they throw us out of here. Um, so who are your early mentors? How did you, um, how did, who helped shape your worldview? Oh, goodness. Um, I was always a reader, right? Um, but that's my next question. I was, um, I was a research assistant for Walt Bogdanich, who's now mm -hmm. at the New York Times, and I is either on his third or fourth Pulitzer. I'm forgetting which. He has so many Pulitzers. That's amazing. But I know he, the name for yeah, sure. Yeah, he was amazing. Um, and one of the things he taught me, of course, was the idea of um, don't be afraid of silence, right? When you're interviewing someone, just let them talk. Like if they pause. The natural inclination of people is to fill the silence, and that's how they right. spill their guts. So he was a huge mentor to me. Um, and then I, um, in personal finance, I mean, I was at the LA Times, which, you know, really had had Kathy Kristoff, uh -huh. who took over Sylvia Porter's column oh, when really? she died. I had Liz Weston, who now writes for Nerd Wallet. Um, I had amazing people. Um, the, to this day, the LA Times has amazing people. Um, Mike David Hiltzik. Lazarus is there, and Mike Hiltzik. His his work uh, is fantastic. They're both fantastic. Um, Lazarus, by the way, I just have to say this, wrote the great, great piece on Trump University in 2007. Really? Yes, you have to Eight go years ago, nine years ago. That's amazing. Um, and it is still an amazing place for this sort of writing. Um, so let's go to, let's go fast forward to books. What are some of your favorite books, be it fiction or nonfiction, finance related or not? Um, oh God, I was just thinking about this the other night um, because I was like, he's going to ask me about books and money, right? Doesn't um, have to be money. It could be, it could be the Bronte sisters. It could um, be whatever you like. I love A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. That was one of my favorite books when I was wow, growing you're going up. Way back. Um, which is about money. Um, I think everybody should read it. Um, one of the many things, I at least reference it at least once a year in a column. Um, it's a poor girl growing up in Williamsburg, and it basically shows how, this isn't why I love it, mind you, I love it for lots of reasons, but it basically shows a lot of the lie of personal finance in it. Because one of the things that's going on in the book is the fact that the mom is trying to save money to buy land. And they have a little bank, because of course in those days, uh, Poor they're, people didn't have bank accounts. They have a can in the closet that they put money in. And they're always having to raid it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And they finally end it when they're dead broke after the father dies and they have to pay to have him buried. The and funeral, the mother, right, yeah. And the mother that. looks at them ironically and says, Well, we have our bit of land now. I never thought of that as a personal finance parable, but now that you say that, it it reveals itself. It's in a, in a small way that uh, in that in that direction. What other book? Um would what, you like to mention? What other books? I love books about New York or L.A. Um, I lived in L.A. for a long time. So aside from Chinatown, give, me, give Chinatown. me a book about New York that you like. New York, um, Let the Great World Spin. 
which is about the Trade Center building being built in the 70s. Huh. Claire uh, Massoud, did I pronounce her name right? Uh, the Emperor's Children, which is about New York also on the verge of... Um, of of the tra- of the, what happened at 9/11 but is really about how the money class took over from the literary class in New York it's a really brilliant book about hmm, that that's interesting. people don't realize that about how What's the name of that again? The Emperor's Children. The Emperor's Children. Um Give these, me one more. Give me one more. I've got to think about this. Um I love history. Um What's the it, best biography you've read recently? I wouldn't say biography. What I would say one of the great historical works of all time is um, John Demos' The Unredeemed Captive, about a girl who was kidnapped by the Indians in the early 1700s in New England and refuses to come home. Huh. The Unredeemed, Unredeemed Captive. Captive. And it's a great, great book about American life. So let me ask you a question about personal finance uh, journalism. What do you see as changing in that space since you began covering that low these 20 years ago? I don't think that much has changed. I think there's some great, great stuff that's done at the L.A. Times, at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Um, But I think most of it has remained not particularly very good. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of scolding. If anything, the Internet has made that worse because there's just this reflexive instinct now to just throw everything up there. So these scolding things get put up constantly. Americans aren't saving enough for retirement. You know, Americans, you need to save more money, not this thoughtful, well, why aren't people saving more money for retirement? There's a bigger picture There's there a bigger as picture, to, and it's, just, and it's, it's more than the latte. And it's just totally neglected. And I guess the last thing I'll say is this is in keeping with the history of personal finance reporting. The If you study this, and I want to credit Trudy Lieberman at, at CJR, who's really written about this extensively. Personal finance writing became very big in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. as an offshoot of the consumer movement. And it was initially seen by newspapers as a way around some of the problems of the consumer movement had given them. Advertising. Advertising. Objections right, to- Right. With cars in particular. Car mm-hmm. dealers were very angry. So they thought, oh, we'll write about this personal finance stuff, and it'll be a way of giving people some hard-hitting consumer coverage and their money and, and yet give still them what get they advertising want. dollars right and still get advertising dollars what they didn't realize because they just thought they were still thinking car dealerships and department stores right what they didn't realize was how big the financial services sector would become in advertising right. and what a conflict of interest that would ultimately cause on the consumer side and, and and i think some of what he writes is is of value there's a guy called mr money mustache and his whole shtick is if you save up enough money when you're early, you could retire at fill in the blank, 30, 35, right. 40, and enjoy your life. And where I agree with him, it's not so much on the self-deprivation, no lattes, no this, no that, is that we have this blind fealty to consumerism. And look, I'm a consumer, but it's not what drives me. And I think people are somewhat just stumbling into spending money without thinking about it. And he raises that issue in a way that I think is very right. thoughtful. But again, that's not most people's problem. Most people's problem is they can't keep up in this society because right. their incomes are stagnating while costs are going up. What I would say is- And so I we're think, not talking about right. iPhones and iPads. We're talking, we're talking about, about healthcare care and, and college. Health. Right. And what I would say is I think Mr. Money Mustache makes a very valuable argument about how you could be tied to jobs that you hate. And that you need to think about this, because I think that is a huge problem in our society, right? That people really feel trapped. But I think his answer 
at just simply blaming the consumerism is completely and utterly wrong. What you really need to say is, why don't we have single payer health care? Why don't we, you know, help people have some sort of base income if that's what you believe in? Um, why are, why don't we support people having children? Why do we only revere children as long as they're in the womb? And then the day they come out, nope, there's no support whatsoever for only families. Country, only industrialized and, country with no paid maternity leave. That's us, right. I mean, it's, it, and to me, I would take what he's saying a lot more seriously if he would start pounding on those topics. All right. So now a millennial comes to you and they say, I'm thinking about going into journalism, personal finance, what have you. What sort of advice do you give them? There's no operating business model in journalism. Don't go into it. Of course, I tell them not to do it. Really? Yeah, there's no operating business model here. No, the the business right. model is simple. Have an expensive terminal right. adjacent to your, your uh, journalism, and there's plenty of money for everybody. The amount of jobs in journalism has fallen by a huge percentage since I got into it in the late 80s, early 1990s. It has fallen even more significantly you know, since 2000. Um, nobody has worked out a, a, a sustainable model that I am aware of, except online. for online. Right. Um, and I basically, aside from basically- as Business what Insider, I, what they I just referred, got sold. They're not making money. Did you see their losses? Yeah, but they uh, got sold. <laughs> yeah. But my point, right? As far as I can tell, the, the main model that's going on here is one of two things, is what I call either rich guy with hobby- and that means somebody who wants to support journalism for, for whatever the reason. The Guardian has the, a huge, huge well, endowment. Right. And then the same thing with uh, ProPublica. Right. That's rich guy with hobby. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the other, of course. Washington Post, is, now owned by Bezos. Right. Is, you know, selling some service with it. Mm -hmm. um, like Bloomberg. Or third, I'm sorry, there's one other. And that is venture money like BuzzFeed or Vox. And we really have right. no idea what's going on at those Isn't, places right now. Aren't we think the Wall they're Street making Journal, money, but we don't know. So so really, you have the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I believe both of those are fairly profitable They're in massive. Both of them are, are under severe constraints. They took on too much debt. See, it's their own fault. They should have no, been No, they're dealing with the fact that the, the print is still bringing in most of the profits, but in fact, the move is towards digital. And hmm. nobody seems to know how to deal with this. There is no one has come up with an answer to this yet. So your advice is don't. My it's, advice is don't. And then the last- Unless you have an independent source of income. If you have an independent source of income, my advice is it's a great job. I love it. Do it. And then the last question I have for you, what is it that you know about the personal finance journalism industry today that you wish you knew when you started out 20 years ago? Oh, just how in the pocket of the financial services sector so much of it is. It didn't even occur to me when I first got into it at all. Uh, you How know, long did it take before that actually you came to I that think realization? It was a gradual realization over a number of years. I don't think I had a moment where I woke up and said, oh my God, this is awful. But what I do remember is even when I was doing Money Makeover, I remember the thought would creep into my head, like the stock market, this is really for rich people. Like this, like it wasn't just that like $10,000 really can't turn into a million dollars. It was more this idea that I understood instinctively that this was going to be careening all over the place. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, this idea that, well, what if it doesn't go up? At the time, they were claiming 10% average annual return, as you might remember. With and dividends reinvested. Right. And I was like, well, what if it doesn't go up like that? And one of the issues that has actually crept in is one of the reasons the number is going down now is because dividends have been cut in more than in cut in half since the early 1980s. You've seen much more buybacks right. increases than you've seen dividends when dividends are something that are 
far more valuable to an investor, right. especially a long-term investor, than, than a stock buyback. Well, that's part of the issue, right? And dividends are a huge value to long-term investors or people who need money for it from this. Helene, this has been fantastic. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, I want to thank Michael Batnick, my head of research, for uh, helping me do the deep dive here. Taylor Riggs is our producer slash booker, along with Charlie Vollmer, my recording engineer, Mark. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you could see the other 86 or so such conversations we've had over the past two years. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.